Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Mazza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Dr. Palestine Naili. Palestine is a historian associated with the Institut Francais du Prochain Orient in Amman. Palestine specializes in the social history of elite Ottoman and Mandate Palestine and also Jordan, and has focused much on a recent research on local governance and politics particularly in Jerusalem. She's interested in collective memory and oral history, and she's connecting the past with the present, and also she looks at this connection through the politics of heritage and folklore. Now, on a personal note, I'm a fan of the work, and I must say that a few years back in a conference, she whispered a magic word in my ears that now has become a sort of a mantra and obviously it's also central in um, Palestine works, which is the concept of demunicipalizations. We will get there, but first of all, Palestine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Roberto. As usual, season two, but I'm not gonna change. The first question is, Palestine, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with a city? Well, I guess there's several layers to my connection. The, f- the first one, obviously, is, um, is personal. Um, there's a lot of childhood memories of um, going to the old city with my grandmother and uh, spending time um, in the city uh, as a child. So, yeah, that's, uh, but, you know, not being a Jerusalemite, um, it was a different approach. It was more of a of a visiting visiting moment. Um, so that's that's one level. And I remember this memory of um, especially the Haram Sharif as a sort of safe haven and as a sort of 
um, space for sociability in a city that sometimes as a child I already uh, saw as rather stressful. So yeah, that's, that's one level. Now the, the next level, I guess, is um, my doctoral research where um, I tended to approach the city from the outside, from the rural hinterland, because I devoted my PhD to the village of Artas, which is 12 kilometers south of um, Jerusalem, and is actually linked to the city with uh, the ancient system of aqueducts, um, taking water from the sources that are located in the Artas Valley um, all the way to uh, Jerusalem. So, yeah, that's another aspect. Jerusalem is sort of the central city with uh, Bethlehem as the central town um, for the village of Artas. And it's the place where people would sell their produce. And uh, yeah, so this is more like the rural approach, let's say, to, to the big city. Um, the, the other perspective is um, very much an inside perspective. And that's um, the perspective of the municipal council. Um, so during the last 10 years, I've been working um, in team, in, in, different, in different teams of different sizes on the um, Ottoman municipality of Jerusalem in particular. And that gives me a rather down to earth perspective on the city. So yeah, I guess it's an articulation of those um, three uh, perspectives. I want to start talking about the question of the municipality. I mean, Jerusalem 2021 is a large city divided in many ways with uh, uh, invisible borders, uh, but we know they do exist. And in theory, there is only one municipality which should um, take care of all of its citizens, but as we know, it doesn't. Now, the municipality of Jerusalem, however, is nothing new, is not uh, a contemporary institution. In fact, it was born uh, in the late 19th century. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, how the municipality came about and how the Ottomans understood this institution and uh, who did it serve? I mean, why municipality in Jerusalem? Well, the municipality actually is not something that came out of nowhere. It's an institution that um, evolved from other models of um, municipal government without them being municipal in that sense, uh, nor that term being used. Um, so, of course, um, as you know, there's the system of, of guilds, the Nakib al-Ashraf, and this entire um, system of, of urban governance that predated um, the, the later Ottoman period when municipalities sort of became formalized from the 1860s onwards. And Jerusalem actually was among the very first um, cities in the Ottoman Empire to create a municipal council in that sense. Um, and that's uh, rather significant also, and it, and it speaks to the importance of the city on the level of the empire. Some historians in the past, uh, when discussing a municipality, particularly under the Ottomans, obviously, there was that this kind of uh, uh, negative approach. Uh, obviously, they, could, they couldn't deny its presence, uh, but they also agreed that it was not really effective, um, that certainly did not represent uh, local people, and they 
had, and this is certainly true, they also had to contend with a foreign presence, particularly the consuls. So I, I always had the feeling, particularly you know, in my own work, but also reading more contemporary works, that actually the municipality had some sort of a appeal and they were able to achieve goals. Obviously, it was not easy in the general context of uh, the Ottoman Empire. So I was wondering, what is your assessment of that institution, particularly before uh, World War I, so before the end of the uh, Ottoman municipality, which obviously then changed radically with the arrival of the British? Yeah, actually, I think the municipality was a really crucial institution. Um, and it was in many ways an important link between the local level and the imperial level of politics. And with local, between local aspirations for the city and the aspirations that the empire had at a time when it also wanted to consolidate its hold on, on the city. So um, I think that the municipal council in some ways uh, really knew how to work within that particular conjunction, which was the, the end of the Ottoman period, when Jerusalem really started to grow, when its importance also on the, the level of uh, the empire increased because it became a mutasarriflik. And so um, all of this um, led to, I think, a municipal council that was rather uh, assertive, uh, even though, of course, as all municipal councils within the empire, they didn't have huge budgets. I mean, you know, they had to sort of work with uh, whatever income they could generate, notably from stores that they owned, in order to then um, pay for a part of the, the expenditures that they had to do. Then there were also some uh, empire-led initiatives, of course, in terms of infrastructure, etc. But there was of course, also a, a huge budget constraint that we have to take into consideration when we look at the actions that the municipality um, could undertake. I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the people that were part of the municipal council, essentially, uh, you know, who are these people that are either elected or, uh, you know, named by the Ottoman authorities? Did they represent all the communities? Uh, what kind of relationship they had uh, with each other and with obviously the constituents, with the uh, citizens of the city. Yeah, there's two really important um, uh, dynamics to keep in mind. One is the censitary barrier, which meant that only uh, men of a certain age and a certain income um, paying a, a certain amount of, of um, property taxes could actually vote. Um, so this sensitary barrier, of course, uh, just like it did still in many countries in Europe, uh, meant that the pool of voters was rather uh, limited and the pool of candidates, of course, um, also very limited, even more so. But there's another dynamic which is particular in Jerusalem, which is uh, the Ottoman census, the nufus. Um, during Ottoman census, only Ottoman souls were counted. And so um, it was clear that only Ottoman subjects would be uh, eligible uh, to either be electors or to be candidates for election if they had the necessary resources. Um, and I think it's Johann Bissell who um, estimated that 
the percentage of the population who actually voted in Jerusalem municipal elections at the end of the Ottoman period didn't exceed maybe 3% of the population. Nonetheless, there was a principle of election. We're not in a logic of representation and not in a logic of quota, confessional quota or whatever other quota. We're in a logic of democratic election, however limited that right of election was. I think the work of Johan highlighted this question of the fact that there was like only 3%. But as you mentioned, I mean, given the historical context, in many places, people simply couldn't vote and there was no right of vote whatsoever. So this was a great advance. Uh, yes, it was only 3%. And yet you have this principle of democratization, um, if we can use the word, which is certainly problematic. And again, I, I remember... Uh, kind of old uh, historiography often painting uh, this period in time as neglected uh, and, you know, simply ending uh, with sentences like, well, the Ottomans ruled Jerusalem. What would one uh, happen? The British came and here we are. This is modernity. This is the new municipality. But the reality is that even British Jerusalem was not born out of the, out of the blue, but the, the, municip the municipal institution uh, and other institution pre-existed the British arrival. Uh, and I think this is an important element to, uh, to remember, particularly those who have no really knowledge of, uh, you know, that part of history of Jerusalem and only look at the contemporary, but there's a long history of municipality uh, in and of Jerusalem. But, but before moving to the British uh, municipality, I wanted to bring you back to your work uh, and focus a little bit on the surrounding of Jerusalem, because this is something that I never touched upon with previous guests. And I was wondering what was the relationship between, you know, communities surrounding the city and the city itself. So in your case, the people of Artas. Yeah, the, the people of Artas had a double link to the city. Um, it was one of the most important markets for their uh, agricultural products, of course, like many other villages in the area. But then there was this water link, which was really fundamental and which really uh, structured, I think, the relationship between Artas and Jerusalem for centuries. Um, I mean, this Roman aqueduct uh, basically, uh, yeah, basically, uh, conferred a certain status on the village and on the inhabitants. And that we know that during certain periods, uh, and notably during the Ottoman period, um, the, uh, the people of the village had um, sort of guardianship of the infrastructure. Um, you know, the infrastructure comprises the Brak Suleiman, the, the reservoirs, and um, of course the aqueduct. And it was really fundamental for somebody to watch over this aqueduct so that the water wouldn't be uh, entirely taken up by other populations along the um, about 20 kilometer, kilometer um, distance that this aqueduct had to, uh, had to pass in order to get uh, to Jerusalem. Um, so this really created a particular relationship um, and it made Artas in many ways uh, closer to dynamics that were unfolding in Jerusalem than other villages of the Bethlehem area. What do we know about the people? I mean, in terms of like uh, social, 
but also political relationships. I mean, you mentioned that there was a market, and of course there is uh, water, which is crucial, uh, given that there is no really water in the region, there's, there's a scarcity of water. Did people of Artas have some sort of power over Jerusalem, or because it was a tiny village, in the end they had to somehow suffer? I know it's not probably the right word, but sort of, a, you know, the rule of a city. And so they didn't really have this much leverage vis-a-vis -vis Jerusalemites. There were conflicts throughout um, the many centuries that, that have linked Artas and, uh, and Jerusalem through water. Um, one of the conflicts, for example, was during the Mandate period, which I know we're going to be getting to later. Um, but, uh, you know, when there was scarcity in Jerusalem, of course, the administrators of the city were trying to find a way to increase the water that would come to the city. And um, Artas was an obvious um, location where they were trying to, to pump more. And so Vincent Lemire, for example, has, has uh, touched upon this, uh, not touched about this, but really actually uh, um, analyzed this in a, in a really detailed way in, in, his, um, in his first work. And, um, and it's something that also, you know, it, it's part of the collective memory of uh, the villagers, this um, sense of being deprived of the very source of what forms their sustenance, because the, the source of the, in the village was mostly devoted to the gardens, to the vegetable gardens. And so taking that water meant basically destroying their livelihood. And that was very austere. And that was actually a moment where the villagers um, sort of uh, mobilized uh, alongside um, Palestinian nationalists in order to ask um, for justice with, uh, with uh, the British administrators. Um, and so it's really interesting to see how uh, this, you, you know, there was a new forum for, for this conflict, which now was... Uh, the, the mandate government, which um, of course had different ways of, of, of approaching it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess the Ottomans and the British, I mean, they, there's a lot of similarities between the two, but, uh, uh, I, and again, I don't know much about how the British handled this question, but I'm sure they had their own ways. Uh, out of curiosity, really out of ignorance for the most part, who were the people in Artas? I mean, in terms of uh, their uh, particular religious identity, are we talking about a village that is mostly uh, Muslim, Christians, mixed? Actually, Artas is, um, is a Muslim village, but it is located um, next to a Catholic convent, the Hortus Conclusos, which um, many of you might know because it's actually, it's, uh, it's also sort of a picture postcard um, perfect uh, image uh, of this white convent in the middle of the, the Green Valley. And it was actually built um, in the very early um, 20th century at the initiative of um, Uruguay. So it was mostly a Latin American um, sisters convent. I remember reading about it when I was uh, working on the uh, diary of a Spanish consul uh, during the First World War. He, he loved going to Artas to the convent uh, and mostly because, again, there were Spanish speakers. 
uh, and you mentioned occasionally, obviously, our task, the villagers and the question of water, but I, I was never really able to gather the details about who are the people, the villagers, um, you know, in general. So it, it's interesting, like, just to sort of map not just the city, but also the surrounding, which is part of a city in itself. I want to move to, uh, you know, further up sort of a chronological ladder. And you co-wrote an article with uh, uh, Yasmin Avcher and um, Vincent Lemire. I think it was co-written, but uh, you might prove me wrong. Uh, the Chronique du Mort Annoncé. La, la municipalité ottomane de Jérusalem dans la tourmente de la Première Guerre mondiale. So, uh, yeah, my French is not great, but essentially the chronicle of a death foretold and the, the Jerusalem Ottoman municipality during the First World War. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of basically this passage, because what we have through your work is this late Ottoman, the war itself, which proved to be, uh, you know, from obviously perspective, uh, you know, a later perspective proved to be the, the end of the municipality. And then, of course, later on, uh, the, the British. So how did the municipality of Jerusalem work, if it worked, during the war? Yeah, that article, actually, I'm solely responsible for. <laughs> but I did oh. write another article about the Ottoman municipality with, uh, with Vincent and Yasmin. Um, so, yeah, that article tries to, um, to look actually at the very last uh, defter, the very last uh, register of municipal council minutes that we have available for 1917. And um, it's, uh, it's a sad document to read in many ways. Uh, especially when you when you know what uh, what stood at the end of it, but um, but even so, it's it's very different in in its uh, contents from what we read before. There's um, there's new protagonists, and we feel that there's a new role for the municipality that didn't assume in that way before. Um, and if we read it at the same time as uh, these crucial resources. Um, that are constituted by West of Johariya's journals and Turjuman's um, journals, then actually we get um, a real sense of the, the shift in the role of the municipal council. Um, the municipal council actually during that period sort of had to um, at the same time assume its role of uh, in some ways, a caretaker of the population. But uh, as Wasif Johariya tells us, it also played its role, the gendarma of the municipality also played their role in confiscating goods for the army. And that was something that was, of course, a very austere measure for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so the relationship, which traditionally hadn't been antagonistic, started to change during that period. But it's interesting, we, while you know, we, we feel that it's really a city in crisis, at the same time, here and there, we see that there's still plans for the future. There's a, you know, there's a one uh, decision relating to a new project for a, a municipal park, for example. It's interesting to read that in the midst war, um, you know, the, the sort of issues that come up during war, like uh, epidemic outbreaks, um, etc. 
So it's, um, it's a very interesting uh, register to have a look at. Um, we also noticed that the, the store owners changed. I mean, the municipality generated a lot of income through renting out stores that it owned, especially uh, around Jaffa Gate, Bab al Khalil. And all of a sudden we find women uh, renting stores. So this also goes to tell us, you know, how the demographic changes affected the city. It's fascinating that in this period of time, as you mentioned, there is a war going on. There's tragedy throughout the city, you know, poverty, starvation, sickness. Um, I mean, through the diaries of Wasif uh, Juaria, you know, Isan Turjman, you get also the sense of a, you know, position of women, in particular many that had to turn to prostitution in order to survive and have their children survive in the war. And yet you have urban planning. I mean, Jamal Pasha as governor of uh, Ottoman Syria and Palestine was still planning the gardens, boulevards, uh, buildings, but not only at the level of the governorship, but also, as you mentioned, at, at the municipal level. So it's, it's fascinating to see how in any case, the, the life of the city was moving forward. But then, as you mentioned, 1917, the British arrived, and in a, in a sense, everything changed uh, in terms of the approach, not in terms of institutions. The institutions are still there. And so I was wondering if now we can you know, start moving to talk about the municipality under the British. How did it work? What are the changes? And then later on, obviously, I'm going to ask about this question of uh, demunicipalization, which I think is a very important and intriguing uh, aspect of your work. Yes, um, the, the municipality continued in its form um, during the British mandate, of course. But what I argue is that it was eroded in its substance. Um, because and you have worked on this, um, and actually this whole idea of demunicipalization in some ways is an echo to um, what you have been working on uh, concerning Ronald Storrs and the pro-Jerusalem society. Because um, when you realize that in Jerusalem under Ronald Storrs, there was this creation of alternative sort of competing institutions um, which were supposed to assume some of the roles that the municipality had, then we can realize in which ways actually the substance of municipal power uh, was eroded. Um, as you know uh, better than me, uh, actually Charles Ashby was the one signing building permits in the 1920s. Um, and this is really, let's say, the, the very basis of the power of a municipality to decide, you know, the use of the space of the city. And, um, and it's interesting because he seems to be rather aware also of assuming some municipal functions um, as uh, the secretary of the, this pro-Jerusalem society. So the municipality changed um, significantly during that period. And um, it's, we actually have to read it at the same time 
as reading the history of those alternative competing institutions such as the pro-Jerusalem society that you work on. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I was wondering also the extent uh, which, which the uh, municipality changed, not only because of the arrival of the British, but also obviously because of the arrival in mass of Zionists. And uh, they not only brought people, but they also brought uh, capital and uh, experts uh, in, in their own ways, in their own fields. And, and that obviously played a role in how the city was then reimagined also through those channels. So, I mean, sometimes it feels that it's just the British that are controlling the municipality, but yet there are different communities. And, you know, obviously there are the Palestinians, but now we also have the new actors in the shape and the form of the Zionists. Yes, precisely. And it's interesting, when you look at the composition of the pro-Jerusalem society, um, you see that there's a, a different logic at work. It's a representational logic. And it's a confessional logic because, you know, it's um, now the idea is to have uh, um, the different patriarchs and um, the different representatives of different religious groups, um, some consuls. Um, uh, you, can, you can complete the list, I don't remember, but it's interesting. It's really, um, it's a completely different logic compared to the logic of a municipal council that's elected. Uh, whatever the basis might be, and we know that it was censitary um, suffrage at the time, but the, the principle of um, political participation has changed from uh, election to representation. And I think that's fundamental. And that's something that was taken from the people of Jerusalem who had had this experience of municipal elections um, for 
several decades before the British arrived. And, um, you know, as we, as we know from the work of uh, Michel Compass also, uh, people really um, made use of the liberties that they had in such moments as uh, the 1908 uh, revolution. And, um, and even if many of that didn't lead to, you know, whatever ambition was there, um, it forged a certain level of uh, expectation. And I think that expectation was completely disappointed. Um, and, uh, you know, we can read it in Wasif Jauharia's uh, uh, diary. He was happy, first of all, to be liberated from the Ottomans. And then uh, slowly he sobered up and he actually became very disappointed with what, with the sort of system that he saw evolving uh, around him under the British mandate. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Yeah, particularly because he was working for Roland Story. He was working in that department. So he could see firsthand uh, how the city was being rebuilt or being built uh, and also planned. So I guess at some point his uh, uh, anti-Ottoman fervor changed and he became a little bit more conscious of the fact that actually, you know, uh, the British were not really bringing what he might have expected probably. Uh, and again, there's also the question of the Zionists who obviously changes, uh, not, not only the demographic uh, of the city, but also uh, the, 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 the power uh, balance between the various actors. And you, you mentioned the Pro Jerusalem Society, which was essentially a private institution. And certainly at the beginning of the British war, it was rather powerful. But then with the institution of a town planning commission, we have a, a proper uh, classic British institution taking over where there's a sort of a different hierarchical structure and also uh, more elected officials are, are part of that. So I was wondering, you know, first of all, what was the Town Planning Commission and how it relates to the municipality and how they worked together and planned Jerusalem during the mandate? Yeah, I had a chance to work a little bit more on that since I first published on this issue of demunicipalization. So as you said, the Town Planning Commission actually took over from the Pro-Jerusalem Society in 1920. Um, and it uh, was then responsible for defining the city's boundaries, zoning, and for arranging eight new neighborhoods um, in the new city. It also uh, retained the right to review all building permit applications, as I said earlier, um, thus really uh, taking what sort of constitutes the physical basis of the power of the municipality. Um, and it was also the only body that was um, authorized to receive complaints about urban planning. So in many ways, um, the town planning uh, commission had a much um, more decisive role um, compared to the municipality. The municipality in some ways had to execute what the town planning commission decided. And um, 
yeah, that was a clear change from from prior dynamics, notably um, under Ottoman rule. You mentioned earlier that this idea of demunicipalization is about erosion of power. And I was wondering if this, uh, what you just mentioned, the fact that in the end, it was the town planning commission dictating what the municipality could do is the very heart of, uh, um, you know, this idea of demunicipalizations. Because one thing that struck me is that we've been talking about this for quite some time and we never mention uh, mayors. Uh, you know, it looks like they're, they're not really relevant. Well, you know, when you look at and you think about municipalities nowadays, but even observing decades earlier, you often have, you know, mayors who do represent the municipality and in a sense they represent the city. But here it seems like they're not really relevant. Yeah, I think the vision that the British had of the mayors was um, more um, representative, again, uh, rather than political. And it's a message that they um, expressed also by dismissing, for example, Musa Qasim al-Husseini in uh, the early 1920s. Because when his role became political, I think it was Ronald Storrs who told him, well, basically, you decide either it's politics or it's city administration. And a similar message uh, was addressed to Hussein Fakhri al-Khalidi, who was um, mayor um, during the Great Arab Revolt. And uh, when uh, he took sides with this revolt, of, he was um, dismissed and, and he was uh, sent to the seashells to, to, into exile. So it was clear um, that for the British, the municipality was not uh, a locus for politics. It was a locus for urban governments in the very technocratic um, sense of the word and for what they called maybe the good uh, management of sectarian strife. Um, because it's, there's an interesting dynamic. I mean, at the very, at the very moment where um, there's a, a sense that the very basis of representation is changing and of political, political participation is changing and is becoming more and more confessional. Um, the British also seem very concerned with sectarian strife. So it, it's, uh, it's almost as though they were afraid of what they were creating um, with their own policies. Uh, they created electoral wards along confessional lines. Um, I mean, if we look at uh, also the the issue of um, municipal council elections, I mean, it was it's very interesting to to, to look at the um, the rules for uh, suffrage that were being discussed in the 1930s, um, because they have a difficult time deciding how to actually uh, limit the right to suffrage. Um, since it was so difficult in any case to, to sort of create some, some system of uh, elected uh, representation on the level of the whole country. I mean, that was basically over uh, from 1923 on, that was clear there would not be a legislative council. 
their hopes turned towards the municipalities and they thought that maybe those could be sorts of testing grounds for, uh, for local democracy or, um, and for self-governance because in some ways they were also supposed to uh, encourage that as, par as part of the mandate. Um, but yeah, they, they could not decide uh, how to work on municipal suffrage thus decided for a while to actually stay with the, the Ottoman suffrage system. And when it came down to drafting um, a first bill for about municipal elections, we can see this hesitation in the archives, actually. How do we call the people who are going to have the right to, to vote? Are they Palestinian citizens? Are they inhabitants of the country? Are they townsmen? What age do they have to be? How many um, pounds of, uh, of taxes do they have to pay? I mean, all of this you can see you know, in, in, in the archives. It takes a long time for them to, to decide. And finally, when they decide, in many ways, they just decide to put off the final decision uh, a little bit longer and to leave many things up to uh, local administrations to decide. So what we have um, in, the in the late 1930s is various um, systems of municipal suffrage implemented in different cities. Um, and um, I mean, the most radical uh, difference, for example, is that in Tel Aviv, women were allowed to vote. And that was the only place in all of Palestine where women were allowed to vote. <laughs> So it's very interesting to look at those at those schedules. Mm. It sounds as the British were inconsistent uh, in their policy. I mean, from day one, since they took over Palestine from the Ottomans. Uh, I mean, I know it sounds like a cliche that obviously the uh, the British were inconsistent uh, in their um, wartime agreements, uh, Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and you know that's one level, but from what you said, and also from the, the work of many others, you really get the sense that the British never really understood how the dynamics worked in Palestine, and they reacted only locally, creating this uh, microcosm where you have all of these different uh, rules and regulations for which, you know, in Haifa you can do something, but not necessarily in, in Jerusalem. And on the other hand, and, and this is more like a, I guess a legacy of it, uh, certainly of, of, of you know the very beginning of British rule. I found always interesting that the work of Ronan Stores, Charles Asby, um, and particularly of Ronan Stores. Honestly, there's not much written about him. When he made certain decisions, like to adopt the white stone, the so-called white stone of Jerusalem. Uh, eventually that affected the entire region. So uh, throughout the mandate and in the decades even afterwards, and even when the West Bank was under Jordanian control and you know the, the Israel on the other side, but still people kept building, relying on these kind of rules. So you travel around the country now and houses are white. <laughs> and again, it, it, there's nothing biblical or, uh, you know, millennia old, but actually it was the decisions of Roland Store that eventually was applied throughout the country. So I found interesting this kind of dual uh, division where you have 
inconsistencies. And on the other hand, you have like certain small uh, decisions, but that eventually impacted everybody in, 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 the, in the region. So I was wondering what, what you think about it. I mean, how do you see that the work of the British in general? Yeah, I think uh, it's, I mean, there, there is a certain level of inconsistency, inconsistency, which we can attribute in part to the fact that uh, not all of them had the same view on the uh, finality of the mandate. Um, there were some clearly pro-Zionist uh, mandate administrators, and there were others who had uh, a very different kind of view. Um, I also find it interesting to look at um, the sort of uh, colonial um, replication of, of models. And, and Nicholas Roberts has done this really nicely in analyzing the Supreme Muslim Council, which was this uh, bizarre creation in some ways of um, the British administrators who wanted to find a, a way out of this difficulty of not having an Arab agency as the equivalent of the Jewish agency. And so they created the Supreme Muslim Council um, and, and uh, decided that uh, this was going to now be uh, the main um, uh, represent, representative body for uh, Palestinian Arabs. And so it's, I think it's fruitful um, and I, I'm looking forward to, to reading more um, uh, about, about these sorts of comparisons actually about British colonialism, for example, in India and uh, in Africa, and, and the way uh, these models th sometimes then were uh, exported. And it makes some sort of erratic uh, decisions maybe a little bit more understandable because they do hark back to an experience, even that, if that experience wasn't Palestinian, even if it was Indian or, or Kenyan or, yeah. And in a sense, this makes Jerusalem part of, of the British Empire, something that many scholars, but I think also people never really thought and realized that for decades, Jerusalem was part of another empire, not the Ottomans, but the British. And in that sense, it was interconnected with all the other places around the world that the British controlled from Northern Ireland to India, Canada, South Africa, uh, obviously, you know, African, various African countries and territories, and all connected. And, uh, and probably there, the, the, the locus of this in inconsistency, you know, sending people with no expertise of the region, but they did understand empire. And so maybe even for us, it's hard to, to understand. No, I, I was just saying that I think the, the sort of um, empire-centered perspective can be really interesting for us sometimes, especially when we're very much working on uh, local history, on micro history. It's really um, rather breathtaking to, to see how, how uh, we can compare this on the level of the empire. Mm. And I realized that only recently when I was reading more about uh, other cities in the region, particularly Haifa, and I really realized that Haifa came to be this economic center, mostly because of the connection with the empire. So the, the, uh, the oil pipes connecting from Iraq, newly created Iraq into Haifa and then expanding from there. And the British had this vision of Haifa really at the center of the Mediterranean. 
and so I, then I connected the dots and I said, well, well, Jerusalem too is part of the empire. And so maybe I can understand better British rule if I think about how the British envision empire. And, you know, it's, it's a long process. I want to ask you something connected to this before we talk about your, your, your upcoming book. Do you see any legacy of the Ottoman and the British uh, municipality in the post-1948 uh, era, which also meant, uh, you know, two different municipalities up to 1967, and then once again brought together after the Six-Day War, uh, again, of 1967. Do you see any legacy, anything that has remained and is still somehow part of a functioning system of a current municipality? That's a very interesting question, and I think um, it would be interesting also to have the uh, the point of view of uh, Hanin Nanme, who's been who's worked on um, on actually the uh, Jordanian municipality of Jerusalem. Um, I think it's it's fascinating as we sort of work from one period to the other, and as we look at the different moments of um, change and transformation. Um, there's there's always some things that remain um, for the um, for the post 1948 uh, municipality. It's interesting uh, to um, it's interesting to consider the new place that Jerusalem actually had because now it was part of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. So it was a real shift in terms of the centrality that Jerusalem had um, under the British mandate. Um, and now being uh, the second city after Amman in some ways. So that was uh, in, in some ways a change of status, even if you know, the city was exalted, of course, as a spiritual center also for the Hashemite kingdom, etc. There, there was a shift. And uh, with the 1967 occupation, um, the municipality, the municipal council of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem did not end. Uh, it moved to Amman. And so that's also interesting to look at a munic municipal council in exile. Um, what does that mean to uh, continue working as a municipal council uh, while you have been displaced and, and dispossessed? Um, so that's that's also fascinating and uh, it's it's work um to to be done for sure one thing that struck me in the recent crisis in Sheikh Jarrah which is not recent it's been going on now for for a decade it's the fact that there's been a growing interest in uh, the Ottoman municipality and people began to look for tapu uh, registry basically cadastral registry in order to prove who owned what and whether it was owned or rented. And so in a sense, it's like, well, the municipality was there for a reason and they did their job. They recorded that. Now, most of records are in Istanbul. They're not necessarily accessible. But I guess for me, it showed the centrality of the municipality. As a record keeper and, you know, now, obviously, the current situation is dramatic and very problematic, but again, the municipality is central because they keep these records and can help people 
you know, sorting out issues. Now, obviously, Sheikh Jarrah is, is another story in that sense, but it really brought back the sense of uh, the, the importance and centrality of a municipality. Yeah. I'm wondering what you think about it. It's, it reminds of the, the, of the centrality of the municipality and of the centrality of municipal control over the space of the city. And I think this is also one of the issues of um, this dynamic of demunicipalization that um, occurred during the British uh, mandate, because actually the municipal council, while it continued to exist, did not have any mastery over the space of the city anymore. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's actually fundamental. You, in some ways, you, um, if you uproot a municipality, then uh, it, it can't really, uh, it, it can't uh, fulfill the, the primary function it has. Well, I guess it feels like w maybe we can say that if you uproot the municipality, in a sense, you take away not necessarily the soul of the city, but certainly a, a major aspect of the city itself, something that keeps the city together, at least in administrative terms, but also I, I probably I would say even more than administrative terms, because eventually the municipality is about services, about uh, trying to... Uh, mediate between uh, people and also thinking about the future because that's what the municipality is for is to gather plans and think about expansion and uh, new businesses and uh, new ideas about the city itself yes precisely yeah and and that's also um what was dramatic actually during the um the british period because uh, this role of town planning uh was not um, among the prerogatives of the municipality anymore. That was the town planning commission now, which was very much um, working under the influence of the high commissioner. So it was very much of a, of a British dominated instance with a lot of input, input from um, Zionist leaders, um, but with virtually no connection to um, the municipalities. I have one last question. And I really want to talk about your uh, upcoming work. Now, the book is going to be published in 2022. It's going to be in French, uh, hopefully one day translated into English. La Palestine entre, entre patrimonie et providence, régime d'historicité et mémoire au village d'Arta. Now, obviously, the work is connected to what we talked about earlier about the village of Artas. But uh, can you give us a sort of a flavor of the book and what uh, will readers find in the book? Yeah, actually, it's, um, it's a book that takes Artas as an observatory for the first instances of European and American presence in Ottoman Palestine, and also of the echo of that presence in collective memory. Um, as many of you know, the Valley of Artas attracted pilgrims, explorers, and biblical researchers um, as early as the 16th century because of this supposed link with the heritage of uh, King Solomon. Um, but then in the mid-19th century, the village actually became the favorite site of settlement for millinerist Christians. Um, and this presence facilitated uh, later on the arrival of researchers. Uh, whose work then resonated strongly among villagers in the context of Israeli occupation. So it's a, 
it's um, a mixture of a historical approach and uh, an oral history approach. Um, and one thing I tried to do is to, to move away from this binary reading of the relationship between East and West and to really focus on what the power relations were um, during the end of the Ottoman period and during the British mandate uh, based on the comparison of uh, local archives, British archives, German archives, etc. Um, the intersection of this historical analysis then with the oral history accounts reveals how this period is either recalled, interpreted, or forgotten by the inhabitants of the village, and also by the descendants of Europeans who lived in the village. And ultimately, these narratives um, shed light on the meanings attributed to, his, to history. And that's uh, something that I'm very interested in. So um, the idea is to also uh, attribute a certain um, importance to these meanings um, that uh, oral history will will um, will give to to history, um, and uh, yeah, in some ways it's a we could say that it's um, a meeting ground between the meta history of humanity, if you think about millinerist uh, expectations, and and Palestinian microstoria, uh, really in a very very uh, local history sense. Um, and at the same time, it tries to open up a new perspective on a period that was really pivotal for um, for Palestine. Is there anything I didn't ask you about the municipality or Artas that you would like to talk about? Oh, um, no, but maybe, maybe um, I'll take advantage of this opportunity to thank you for the inspiration that your work has provided to mine <laughs> and um, for the inspiration that the work of so many uh, dear colleagues has provided because I really think that um, for the last 10 years we've sort of built a, a community of scholars who um, regularly converse about uh, various issues concerning Jerusalem and this has been very stimulating. This was uh, Palestine Naili, a historian associated with the Institut Francaise du Prochain Orient in Amman. She has an upcoming book that we already heard about it in 2022, La Palestine entre Patrimony et Providence, about Artas. Palestine, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.